All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, we are on our second to last equipping our class in this series. Um, and uh, just by way of reminder, there are handouts back there uh, by the, uh, the sound booth. And uh, I want to make a couple just uh, housekeeping remarks. Uh, first and foremost, do not be intimidated by the fact that there's literally 42 terms in, uh, in this handout. Um, uh, I'm intimidated by it going through it, but you shouldn't be. It's totally fine. Um, we'll get through it, I promise. Uh, second, um, this is going to be a little bit different of a class this morning. I'll explain uh, kind of why as we go. Hopefully it becomes clear as we go. But um, we're going we're gonna to sort of merge these books a little bit. So uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in particular have a great deal of overlap. So we're going to kind of treat them as, as one thing. Um, and then because there's so much thematic and application overlap between all three of the books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, we're going to kind of treat them um, holistically as well at the end of the class. That said, uh, we are covering Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther this week, and then uh, next week we'll close out this series with the book of Job. And uh, in full disclosure, when I signed up for this week, I was primarily excited about Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah were just the cost of doing business. I'm going to get to Esther and I'll do the other ones, no big deal. Um, but as I was going through this, I, uh, I actually got more excited about Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, I think it's going to be a fun morning. That said, as I was preparing, I forgot two very important realities when I signed up for these. First and foremost, these are chronologically messy books, uh, Ezra in particular. So uh, that's the first thing I'd forgotten. And the second thing I'd forgotten was uh, there's, just, there's a necessity for a lot of background and context before you dive into these particular books. Um, in particular, Esther doesn't even take place in Israel. It takes place way, way, way to the east. Um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah do take place in Israel, but at the same point in time, there are scenes uh, that are, are outside of the area, and they are both uh, in a time period in which the, the Jews are still ruled over by a foreign power, and that foreign power plays a very prominent role in those stories. So in order to do justice to this, remember our Equipping Hour series is intended to help folks uh, better read these books. We're going to have to spend a little bit of time at the beginning talking about Persian history, which is the, um, where we're going to go, as well as the chronology um, in terms of just, just the historical point we're at. Um, but before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll sort of jump into things, and hopefully it becomes clear as we go. Oh, Lord, bless our time this morning. These are rich books, Lord, and we can uh, be encouraged and edified and convicted as we go through them. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this church and any who would be listening uh, now or in the future to these series, and um, that we would we'd walk away just um, enthused for you and for the truth, the, the, the inerrancy, and the, the joy that it is to have the scriptures. And we ask you for these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Persian History 101. And I'm going to go through this reasonably quickly. Um, but most of these concepts are either terms that are used in the book or I think just 
um, maybe not necessary, but borderline necessary to really be able to sort of read these books richly. Um, and the first one there, the shifting ancient Near East landscape, um, when we typically read the Bible, right? Like Israel's the focus. Uh, what's happening to the people of God is certainly the focus. But in that greater ancient Near East context, I mean, Israel's like this tiny little sliver compared to like the vastness of the territory um, uh, in the ancient Near East. And there's a lot of things that happen around Israel in the same time periods that we read about in the scriptures. Um, you know, for example, last time I was up here, we talked about uh, the Philistines being a threat to Israel. The Philistines have a pretty rich history. They had a rise, they had a fall, they had a culture, they had a pretty strong seafaring empire, and then they fell. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's all these cultures that are around Israel, but in particular, there are three that are really, really important to the story. Um, and you can think of them as Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And essentially what has happened uh, in and around the, the time frame that we've been reading about uh, throughout this series, big empires have fallen and then they have, I'm sorry, have risen, and then they've been consumed by other bigger empires. So Assyria is, is by and large the first one. Um, this is the, the entity that rose up and carried away the, the northern uh, uh, portion of Israel uh, into captivity. Um, and Babylon is the next big one. Uh, Babylon is, the, is the, the, the behemoth of an empire that ultimately um, uh, conquers the, the Judah and carries them away into exile. Um, but then Babylon itself, as big and as powerful as it was, is then consumed by the Persian Empire. And at the time of our books, the Persian Empire is the largest in the world at the time, with the possible exception of what's happening in China. Uh, the Persian Empire is, is the big player on the world scene at the time. And so um, think about um, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia kind of in that order. And the reason why that's important, again, as you read these books, um, these three countries are, are referenced uh, repeatedly and as if the reader is familiar with their existence. Um, so that's the first point, shifting ancient Near East landscape. You kind of have this empire-consuming, empire-consuming empire, consuming empire, consuming empire uh, in that order. Gross oversimplification, but first point. Uh, second point is the Babylonian exile. So um, as I just mentioned, it was Babylon that conquered Judah. That happened in 586 BC, plus or minus. Um, and it was the, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who ultimately <coughs> conquers Judah. Um, and uh, it, it's important to note that while that happened in 586, um, in um, a, a number of decades later, again, Persia consumes Babylon. And um, in fact, it's in 539 BC that King Cyrus of Persia took over the Babylonian Empire and added it to the Persian one. So 539, King Cyrus overthrows um, uh, Babylon and takes over all their territory, which would include, of course, Judah. Um, now, they have a much more... I don't know, egalitarian view of conquest than the Babylonians did. Um, and so uh, at the end of Second Chronicles, the beginning of Ezra, we have a count of that same king, King Cyrus. This is the year of Cyrus's decree, by the way. Uh, he issues a proclamation that uh, the Jews can return uh, to Judah and they can begin rebuilding things if they're so inclined. And that happens in 538 BC, just after Persia takes over Babylon. So 539 BC, King Cyrus beats 
um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then 538 BC, um, a decree goes out, Israel can be Israel again. Still under the context of the empire, it's not like they're allowed to have their independence, but it's that you know they can sort of come back and be a, a people group again uh, in a in a concentrated place in their homeland. Uh, temple reconstruction is the next term. Um, we're going to see this as we go through Ezra, um, but it is uh, important to note that's the very first thing that Israel begins to do. They get back into the land, they start sacrifices, and then they realize, well, we should have the temple as well, and they start building the temple. Um, and so in about 536 BC, they begin to rebuild the temple, um, but reconstruction doesn't actually finish until about 516 BC. Um, all right. Now, uh, as it relates to a partial return, I know I'm going through quickly. I apologize. If you want me to slow down or come back to something, please, please, please let me know. Um, but, um, but in terms of partial return, now this is an interesting piece because, you know, as, as you can kind of see from that timeline I put at the bottom of page one in the notes, um, the book of Ezra, I'm sorry, Esther, takes place in between uh, part one and part two of the book of Ezra. Um, and um, when we get to Esther, we're going to see that there are Jews still living all throughout Persia. It's not like they've all come back into Israel at that time, even though they could have. Um, and so what we see is sort of this, this partial return of the Jews back to the promised land. Um, and so, you know, it's, and it's, it's, you know, Israel's not in the best of place when we begin our story um, um, a whole generation has been raised in exile. Um, Israel has been attempting, attempting to try to keep things together, but it's been a bit rough. Priestly lines have become a bit muddled. Some of the gene- genealogies aren't uh, as clear as they used to be. And there is even some sense, I think, of a loss of identity as the people of God. Um, you know, who Israel is tied up in the Mosaic Covenant, in the land, um, as a people group. I mean, that, that, is, that has obviously been completely shattered in the uh, Babylonian captivity. And so in exile, there's a little bit of, of loss of identity. Um, and so it's not super surprising that not every Jew returns home, but it is a fact that not every Jew returned home. They're still scattered throughout Persia, um, even after Cyrus's decree. Uh, this next term, beyond the river, it comes up in Ezra, um, and it's a, a, a geographic uh, location. So if you're reading the book and you come across it, the river is the Euphrates. Persia is, the power center is, is to the east. So if you're looking, if you can imagine Israel on a map, um, really, you know, Babylon was more like to the north of them, and then Persia um, is really sort of to the east of that. Um, and so the empire they have goes all the way down and includes Egypt, um, but the power center for Persia is really to the east, and so the Euphrates is the river. And so everything that we're talking about in our story, you know, Israel, Judah, all that territory, they refer to it as beyond the river. So if you're in the book and you're seeing that term, that's what that refers to. And the power center of the area, important for the story, is um, Samaria. So this is where the, the, um, uh, the administrative center of the, you know, the, the area is, uh, subservient, obviously, to Persia, but Samaria is the, is the biggie, and that's just to the north of Judah, uh, where the, uh, the former northern kingdom of Israel was. And then um, Persian kings. So last point here. 
and then we'll talk about timeline and then I'll pause and you can ask whatever historical questions you want. But in terms of the Persian kings, there are four that are referenced in these three books. Um, you don't need to memorize their timelines, um, but getting them in order is important. Uh, you've got Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, and Art Artaxerxes. So Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes. Um, that's the order. They generally take up after one another, with the exception of a few years between Cyrus and Darius, um, and that's mostly because Cyrus's kid comes to power um, and ends up dying, and Darius takes over. I think he's, he's Cyrus's cousin. Um, but nothing important really happens in terms of Israel between those date periods. Um, but Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes are the four kings that are referenced in these texts that are really important to the story. Um, if you're able to look at your handout, the very bottom, depending on the quality of your eyesight, there is a timeline at the bottom um, that kind of puts these things in perspective. And again, one big thing to note is Ezra 1 through 6 happens in Darius's reign. Esther happens in Ahasuerus's reign. And then the back end of Ezra and all of Nehemiah takes place in Artaxerxes' reign. So this is chronologically messy. It hopefully will be clear as we go, but that is kind of how these books uh, fall in the timeline. And it's kind of what's generally happening in the world at the time in which they take place. <sighs> Questions? Yes. Okay, so you have Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquers Judah mm -hmm. in the first quarter of the timeline. Is that the beginning of the captivity? Um, I think technically speaking, uh, that date is really more sort of like the fall of the temple and the, the death blow to Judah. I think it started technically earlier than that. And it gets a little funky because, you know, Jeremiah talks about a 70-year captivity. And, you know, depending on when you start the date and compared to the Cyrus's decree, there, there's some flexibility as to what that 70-year period actually is. Um, but I think, if memory serves, Babylon had already begun incursions into Israel and was beating them before that. I want to say 605 plus or minus is when it started. Don't quote me. Good question. Any other questions? Um, just curious to have in your notes to remember where in Kings or Chronicles that happens. Uh, what was that? Yeah. Yeah, Cyrus's decree is the very, very last thing. Um, so the last couple chapters, honestly. I mean, it's, I think it's like the last chapter of, of Second Chronicles. Yes, at the end. <laughs> Other questions? What, yeah. what did you say Samaria was? Samaria is uh, essentially where, where the northern kingdom was, um, so just above Judah. Oh, all that land up there? For the most part, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, my goodness, I skipped the Samaritans. I'm so sorry. I skipped that term. Huh. Uh, let's talk about them really fast because, you know, to, 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 it, it's actually an important antagonist in Ezra. So um, the reference for that is 2 Kings chapter 17, if you want to read the story. But when Assyria conquers the northern part of Israel, um, they have a policy of sort of replantation of people. They take group from where you used to live and they put you somewhere else and they bring other people in. Uh, presumably that is to make you less, disin less inclined to rebel. If you're, not, if you're fighting for your great-great-great-grandfather's house and land, you have some fidelity to where you're at. But if you're in some other part of the world where you don't know the terrain, you don't have any ties to it, you're probably less likely to, uh, to put up a big fight. 
Um, and so one of the things that the king of Assyria, the, uh, and it starts with an E, it's a very long name, he brought in a bunch of people to go live in Israel, and the Lord subjects them to essentially a plague of lions. Um, and so they're just getting ripped apart. And uh, they, they, they try to figure out what's going on, and somebody says it's because this land belongs to Yahweh, and you aren't really treating it appropriately. So they bring a priest in, and the priest essentially instructs those new residents of the northern kingdom um, in all the, 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 the ways of God, the Mosaic Covenant. And this people group adopts those practices and adds it to their existing paganism, and so, that, you know, Yahweh just becomes part of their pantheon, and that people group is essentially the Samaritans. And they, um, by the time of Ezra, they uh, believe themselves to be, you know, sort of faithful to, to Yahweh as well as everybody else that they worship. Um, and um, they have amassed some amount of power. Again, their uh, territory is the administrative power center for the area uh, under the Persian rule. So that's who the Samaritans are. Um, and in this book, we're going to see why they were so hated in Jesus' day, but we'll get to that. Other questions? All right, let's move on, pretty please. Um, all right, so Ezra and Nehemiah as a, a book. Um, again, they are two different books, but um, in, um, in tradition, they are treated as a single work. When I say in tradition, I mean sort of in Jewish tradition. Um, we aren't certain who wrote it, but there are autobiographical pieces in both books. And so, um, obviously, um, Ezra had a piece, Nehemiah had a piece. But whether they were compiled uh, by one of those two or some third party, we're not really sure. Um, in terms of dating, um, I, you know, I generally assume, absent other evidence, that the books are written you know, fairly close to when the events actually occur. Um, and since, since the last event in the two books occurred um, in the, uh, the early uh, 400, so 433 to 424, general ballpark for when these books could have been written could be later, but no earlier than 433 to 424. Um, now, in terms of a recap of events, if you look at your handout, I'm going to not walk through every chapter. I'm going to kind of hit the highlights um, and do these in chunks. Um, but again, I'm going to go through both books in one sitting. Um, if you've got any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. I'll give you an opportunity at the end as well. Um, but we're just going to kind of run through them both because the stories very much overlap. Um, and again, remember too, chapters 1 through 6 are a different time frame than 7 through 10 of Ezra. So we're going to kind of treat those in chunks as well. Um, but Ezra 1 opens up the same way Second Chronicles ends with Cyrus's decree. The Jews can come back to the land, and about 42,000 of them do. Uh, they rebuild the altar, they resume the sacrifices, but they lack a temple, and so they begin to reconstruct it. And that's really what chapters 1 through 3 are about, uh, the return and the reconstruction. There's some genealogical uh, information in there as well, but mostly it's, it's logistics and rebuilding the temple. Um, chapters 4 through 6 are uh, a little bit more about the opposition that they face. 
Um, they are met with opposition by the Samaritans in particular. And actually, the Samaritans start in chapter 4 by offering to help them, um, provided they get to worship alongside the Jewish people. Whether that's a sincere offer or not is questionable, um, and it probably isn't sincere given that it, you know, a, a rebuilt and rebut, um, rebuilt and uh, uh, revitalized Jerusalem is, is going to be a threat to uh, their power center. So this is probably not super legit. Uh, but regardless of their intent, uh, Israel turns them down. And so they, of course, go away happy. And, no, they, they, they immediately try to fight Israel on rebuilding the temple. Um, and in fact, if you are interested in chapter four, uh, this is a really odd chapter. Um, just, some, just a quick note. Uh, verses 1 to 6 are in the then-present part of the story, and then verses 7 to 23 fast-forwards about 100 years. Uh, and then chapter 4, verse 24, goes back to the then-present time. So um, if you're in that chapter, just be aware it's kind of mucky in terms of um, chronology. But regardless, the main thrust in 4 through 6 is that the Samaritans are... Um, uh, opposing the the temple, they do so bureaucratically. Um, so they write to some of these kings. They try to lobby Cyrus to undo his permission. They they go to Darius and try to undo his permission. Um, later on, they go to Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes to try to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the temple is finished. Um, but they they essentially try bureaucratic means and bribery to get Israel to uh, not succeed in building the temple. They're somewhat successful. Um, it takes Israel, you know, plus or minus 20 years to build the thing. It shouldn't have taken that long. It's due to their opposition that it took as long as it did. Um, but ultimately, um, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah encourage the people to continue the work, and they do. And eventually, Darius, King Darius, chimes in and says, "I support this," and that kind of ends the opposition, and the temple is rebuilt. Um, now again, chapter 7 is a shift in chronology. It jumps ahead uh, a number of years. So Ezra 1 through 6 takes place between 537 and 515, as you see in your timeline. Um, and then um, chapter 7 to 10 and the book of Nehemiah take place in Artaxerxes' reign in 464 to 423. Um, it's actually kind of more in the middle of that time frame if you're interested. But, ba but basically, it's a 60-year jump in time starting in chapter 7. Um, and chapter 7 is where we get introduced to Ezra. So 1 through 6 is all precursor, and we get to 7, and Ezra's on the scene. Um, um, and it's been, you know, well, it's 60 years uh, since, you know, 1 through 6. It's been about 80 years, plus or minus, since um, uh, Cyrus's decree when Ezra shows up. So again, generation, generation and a half, um, Later, Ezra is a priest and a scribe, and the Lord is repeatedly mentioned as being with him. We're going to come back to that in the themes, um, which is actually a good thing, though, because Ezra immediately encounters some problems when he shows up. Um, specifically, and this is you know super frustrating for for those who've you know been following the series. When he shows up, Israel has once again intermarried with foreigners, the very thing that got them in trouble in Judges, and um, you know has ultimately got Solomon in trouble. It just they've done it again. They're intermarrying with foreigners, um, and Ezra essentially breaks down. Um, 
he, um, he he goes to God. He's 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 frustrated. He is prayerful, and then immediately takes action. He calls the people to repentance, um, and and they do. They they put their foreign wives away, and there's a there's a big chunk of the text that covers that, um, and that is actually how the the book ends with Ezra on the scene uh, addressing this particular uh, failing of the, the Mosaic Covenant, or the it, people's faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant. <laughs> calling them to repentance, they do, and the book ends. Um, Nehemiah picks up in roughly the same time frame. Um, Nehemiah is actually late, a little bit later to the scene than Ezra is, so Ezra's there first. Nehemiah comes about 14 years later, um, and, and they're very different people. Um, so if you want to date, Nehemiah's on the scene about 444 B.C., um, but, you know, Ezra is a, a priest and a scribe who comes from Babylon. So that's where he was before he shows. Again, partial return. He was living in Babylon, um, which is, again, that Persian province. Um, whereas Nehemiah was a cupbearer for Artaxerxes himself. So he's literally the guy who gives him his wine um, and uh, was very popular with Artaxerxes. Um, but he lived in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire far, far to the east. So different people, different backgrounds. Um, Ezra, the book of Ezra and Ezra himself, he's primarily concerned with the law, with the temples, with priests. That's kind of where his focus is. Um, Whereas Nehemiah is more focused on the rebuilding of Jerusalem and civil governance. So kind of make that distinction. Ezra's, I'm sorry, Nehemiah is not a king. He ends up becoming the governor of of Israel, the province, because obviously they're under Babylonian, I'm sorry, Persian rule. Um, but uh, he's more of the civil guy, and Ezra's more of the religious guy, although these two bleed over, which is an important note. Um, in, uh, in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6, that's really all about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, um, and particularly the, the hard go they have of it. Again, the Samaritans really not wanting this to happen. Uh, they put up a fight, and, and, and in case literally, um, the, the, the text tells us that when they're rebuilding the walls of the city, they literally have like you know the spear in one hand, and they're putting the bricks on with the other. Um, you know, rather than being able to take the sword off and go down to the river and get some water, they're carrying their swords with them. So they're they're kind of having to sleep with one eye open, also literally, um, in the text. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a hard go of it, but ultimately they are successful. Um, Nehemiah, that's, that's chapters one through six. Um, Nehemiah uh, again becomes governor. Not super clear to me whether he's governor at the outset or if that becomes a later thing. Um, I think he is governor from the outset, but don't quote me. Um, and he serves as governor ultimately for about 12 years. Um, but like Ezra, he encounters some problems in the land, the first of which is that there is a famine going on. And um, unfortunately, uh, uh, no, no crisis goes to waste, and so while there's a famine going on, the people who have money, who have resources, are lending money to, and so, so uh, richer Jews are lending money to poorer Jews at significant interest. Um, and of course, because of the famine, they're not able to repay, and so they're losing farmland, they're having to you know, sell their kids into slavery as ultimately to repay debts. And so this usurious practice, that's the term usury, uh, usury, um, is resulting in um, a a 
really bad situation within the people. So Nehemiah recognizes this. He himself has actually been been, uh, lending out money or giving things away at no cost, uh, with no uh, obligation to repay, no interest. Um, And so um, he points out that he's been doing this. The noble should follow suit. They need to repent. They do. and uh, that uh, that sort of you know ends the uh, that section of the book. Um, that that happens in the same context as rebuilding Jerusalem. So it's really more of like a chapter five thing. Um, but um, long story short, you know Nehemiah shows himself to be faithful and um, a good governor for the people. Uh, fast forward to chapters eight through ten, and this is another sort of like climax in the story. In fact, eight through ten, and then. Um, Chapter 13 are probably the next two really big uh, event chapters in the book. In 8 to 10, uh, Nehemiah calls a huge gathering of the people, um, and Ezra uh, uh, leads out in reaffirming, reproclaiming the law to the people. Um, This is sort of like a rededication of Israel to the Mosaic Covenant. Um, in chapter 9, in fact, sort of there's a truncated uh, summation of everything that we've gone through in this series. Um, and uh, if you are ever interested in just a bang-up summary of the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 9 will do that for you. Um, but essentially the people acknowledge that the reason that they are in the state that they are in um, is really because of their failure to obey the Mosaic Covenant, their sins, their ancestors' sins, um, and they not only repent, they rededicate themselves again to the covenant, um, and they make some very, very specific promises. Um, now, while that is super inspiring, as you read through the book, it goes downhill um, in chapter 13, um, and we find Nehemiah having to sort of clean house a little bit. So one of the realities for Nehemiah is that because he was Artaxerxes' cupbearer, he still has some obligation to the guy. So he will occasionally go back to Susa, and while he's gone, um, rebellion occurs, essentially. In chapter 13, uh, that's exactly what we see. Uh, He has gone to Susa, and he has come back, and there's a number of problems that Nehemiah has to clean up. Um, First and foremost... Um, Gentiles have begun integrating themselves into into Jewish life. Um, and I don't mean, you know, they're in the marketplace selling stuff. I mean, like, they're fully participatory in, you know, the worship of Yahweh and the sacrifices. It's, you know, there's, they're, they're, they're there, but they're not actually part of Israel, but they're participating in um, covenant community in a way that they shouldn't. So he's got to separate them out. Um, he has to clean, uh, cleanse the temple. Uh, one of the priests allowed an actual enemy of Israel, for some reason, to take up residence in one of the rooms of the temple, um, a Gentile, so that the temple has to get cleansed. Um, the, the Levites have to be brought back. So, um, unfortunately, you know, as, as you may recall from the Mosaic Law, the, the, the Levites are supposed to get their portion from the sacrifices, and that wasn't occurring, um, and so they were kind of going hungry, and so they had to abandon some of their priestly duties and go till the field. Um, and, and when that happens, that means there's less time for sacrifices, less time for temple worship, and it's, you know, it's kind of a, a self-perpetuating cycle going downhill. So Nehemiah has to restore them getting their proper portion, bring them back, and so the, the, the worship of Yahweh, um, according to the law, can continue. 
Um, and uh, you know, my uh, my last two favorites. Uh, he has to stop yet more intermarriage with foreign women. Um, that happens again, and um, he has to stop violations of the Sabbath, um, which going back to chapter 10, is one of the things that the people explicitly promised that they would not do anymore, but um, they are. Ultimately, what's happening is Gentiles were coming into the city on the Sabbath, selling you know, wares and goods um, and trying to do business, and the Jews were coming out and participating. Um, and so the Sabbath was being violated. And uh, the book ends in chapter 13 with Nehemiah fixing all of these issues and essentially commending himself to God for his faithfulness. And that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Questions? Does that make sense? Comments? Concerns? Anything I didn't do uh, uh, justice to? All right. Let's transition then into Esther. And again, we're going to go through... Um, the, the basics of the story, and then we'll focus on theology and themes across all three books as well as application. Um, Esther is another one of those books where we have no clue who wrote it. Um, so if you write down the words no clue, it's totally fine. Um, and, you know, in terms of the dating, uh, same idea if we assume that they, the book was written commensurate with when the, the, the last events in the book were written, it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 464 at the earliest. So um, in, that, in that ballpark, mid-5th century then. Um, now, in terms of recapping the story, um, just, a, just a quick note. This is actually a pretty dark story. Um, you know, sometimes I know we read, you know, at least I was... Uh, guilty of this, reading through the book and kind of thinking it more like an entertaining, almost comedic read, um, you know. Uh, but but it actually is is pretty pretty dark. The central threat in this book to Israel is genocide. Um, the the central threat is the extermination of the Jewish people on the basis of one man's just horrible pride and hatred. Um, but the book's style, you know, um, and the the irony, the reversals of fate, you know, it, it can make it easy to miss some of the reality and the grittiness of the situation that Israel faced. Um, but this is a really dire situation, and I'm going to try to bring that out um, as we go. I um, I also put a, a verse reference in the notes there, Psalm two. I put one through six, but one through four is probably the most important piece. Can I get a volunteer? To read that, um, this is this is a, a, a psalm that's not directly related to, to Esther, but it, it, in a sense, we could kind of consider it like a theological commentary on it, and probably good to kind of keep it in mind as you read the book. But can I get a volunteer to read that, pretty please? Tyler, through four. Uh, go, go through six. Go through six. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Thanks. 
Again, not directly on point with Esther, but the the idea that there is a plot against the people of God and God in heaven laughing and you know responds to them in his wrath is is absolutely thematic in this book that's what's happening here um and there the humor of the book sort of that that irony and the reversal of fate that we're going to talk about as we go through it um is um is itself pretty terrifying because it is it is the lord looking at a plot against his people and snorting in derision and turning it on its head um that said, let's jump into the book. Um, the, uh, I, I put the, the, the chapter references there in the notes with a little bit of a title for each one. Um, and uh, this is largely the way the story unfolds. Uh, I'm, I'm going to gloss over some stuff at the very end um, with a sentence or two. But uh, for the most part, I'm going to cover the highlights. So the, the book begins uh, with the queen's banishment. So we start with this king, Ahasuerus. Um, and uh, again, if you go back to that timeline, he's the, the third one uh, in, in the story so far. Um, he is the one before, uh, the one who favors uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So again, we're between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra uh, so far. And if you like secular history, uh, Ahasuerus is the one who led the incursion into Greece and uh, won, but kind of lost, the battle at Thermopylae against King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans, plus a few thousand Greeks. Um, There was a second part of that battle that happened afterwards. He loses that too. And so Persia uh, uh, comes back in defeat. And the way I understand it, at, at the time of this story, that's already happened. Um, and that actually might explain what happens in this chapter with the queen. It might also explain the, the king's um, willingness to exterminate the Jews in the book. Um, because just for sake of fun, if you're going to go attack another country um, and you're going to raise you know, hundreds of thousands of troops to go do that and go travel a bunch of uh, land, uh, distance away, that's really expensive. It costs a lot of money. Um, and the value to the kingdom is in, yeah, sure, additional tax revenue and those sorts of things that come in later, but it's a lot, a lot of it's the plunder. You know, if you spend, I'm making the numbers up, you spend $100,000 to go conquer somebody, hopefully you get at least that in what you take from them. Um, And so defeat is both uh, uh, reputationally problematic, but also economically problematic. Um, And so Ahasuerus is probably not in the best place reputationally and maybe even economically at the time of this story. Um, He also seems to be just a a complete um, depraved individual. He is super, super, super drunk uh, in the, the first chapter of the book. And essentially, he wants to show off his queen, you know, kind of like a trophy wife type situation. Um, and she refuses. And so he ends up banishing her, re- revoking her as queen um, and banishing her. And um, in chapter two, his servants say, you need a new king, so let's get you one. And they... Um, they decide the best way of doing that is to essentially do a Persian empire-wide sweep of all the pretty girls in the kingdom and bring them in. Um, and at first blush, this may seem like it's you know sort of like the Miss Persia contest, like a beauty contest or something along those lines. It, it's not. It's, it's way sadder and way more depraved than that. 
Um, these girls are, are taken. They're not, they're not, you know, it's not a volunteer type of thing. Like, they're taken in. Uh, they're deprived from their, their families for a 12-month period. There's a beautification period that happens. Um, presumably, some number of them are screened out, um, but 12 months of, of you know, diet and, 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 and perfume and those sorts of things happen. Um, and then at the end of the 12 months, chapter 2, verse 14, says that each girl is given to the king for a night, which is exactly what that sounds like. Um, and at the end of that, the girls become part of the king's harem. They become concubines. Um, and that would repeat until the king found someone that he felt was worthy of the crown. Um, and so, again, just kind of the greediness of the situation. This is, this is a really depraved, sick thing. I think we would all be aghast if we read that the prime minister of Italy, just picking on a country, uh, was doing the exact same thing. You know, he divorced his wife, he's finding a new one, and this is how he, he did it. I mean, it would be horrifying to us today. It should be horrifying when we read this book. Um, you know, these girls who were, you know, put in the harem, any hope of a normal life, family, kids, grandkids, all of that is completely dashed. Um, it's a crown for one, but heartache for many. Um, but while this is going on, we are introduced to a Jew by the name of Mordecai. He is raising the daughter of his uncle by the name of Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther. Um, and fun fact, Mordecai's great-great-great-great-grandfather was a guy named Kish. Uh, does anybody happen to know uh, what Kish is famous for in the Old Testament so far? It's okay if you don't. It's a really random person. All right, I'll tell you. Kish is King Saul's father. Um, so Mordecai is actually... It's not, he doesn't, he's, he's not necessarily related to Saul, but he, I'm sorry, he's not a descendant of Saul, but he is of Saul's family. He's a descendant of Kish. Um, and that reference, we're going to come back to that a couple of times. It seems to be a theme in the book, um, but uh, Mordecai is introduced as a relative of King Saul. Um, well, Mordecai's Esther ultimately ends up winning this, this prize. She becomes the queen, and um, that is one of the two big stories in chapter 2. Second big story in chapter 2 is Mordecai, the forgotten savior. This is almost treated as an aside in the story, but essentially what happens is uh, you know, Mordecai, for whatever reason, he's a guy who hangs out right in front of the king's house. Um, I presume that there's a lot of you know, commerce or so, you know, something that happens there, but this is where he hangs out. And he ends up overhearing a threat on the king's life that it sounds like would have been successful. Uh, he rats out the, uh, the conspirators, and ultimately the king's life is saved. Good job, Mordecai. But they kind of forget to reward him. Like, nothing actually happens. He just saves the king's life and end of the story. Um, and so... Uh, that story is told, and then a pin is put in it, which, which comes back later on in, in the book. Um, in chapter 3, we are introduced to the antagonist, a guy named Haman, um, and uh, we read about his petty hatred and his financed genocide. Um, Haman is the king's right hand. I cannot overstate just how powerful and important this guy is. Um, aside from being the king, he is the most powerful and important person in the kingdom. Later on, he literally says, I have everything that any man could want. Um, 
He can't get more powerful than Haman, and the king has, uh, has honored Haman by saying, whenever this guy walks by, everybody in the kingdom needs to bow. Um, but there's a problem. This, this Mordecai guy, he refuses to bow. And we don't necessarily know why. The text just sort of says that it has something to do with Mordecai being a Jew. Um, but reading between the lines, uh, there's a good possibility that Mordecai doesn't bow. Let me just pause there. there. There's nothing religious in the text, or at least clearly religious. It's not like you know people are told to worship Haman or something along those lines. This isn't like a Daniel situation um, where bowing would be idolatry. Um, they're just told to show honor and respect to Haman. So unless there's something that's not stated in the text that this is somehow religious, um, we don't really get a clear sense as to why Mordecai is not bowing before him. The only thing that's there, and there by implication, is that Haman is described as the Agagite. Um, in other words, he is a descendant of a guy named Agag of the Amalekites. And anybody remember that name in the Old Testament? King Agad of the Amalekites. Saul was supposed to kill him. We have another Saul reference um, in 1 Samuel 15. This is the instance that got Saul to lose his kingdom. He was supposed to slaughter all of the Amalekites. Um, now, these, this was the enemy of Israel going back to Exodus chapter 17. Yeah, 17. Um, and so long feud with Israel, but Saul was supposed to have put them to the sword, put them under the ban, um, and he failed to do so, and that's what got the kingdom ripped away from him. Haman's a descendant. So we have Mordecai, the descendant of Kish, related to Saul, and we've got Haman, the descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. That's not a coincidence. It's not like God ran out of characters and just started recycling people. Like, this is here for a reason. Um, and that may be why Mordecai refuses to bow to him. Um, but Haman, despite having everything in the world, and I cannot emphasize that enough, um, in chapter 3, verse 5, it said that he was filled with fury over the fact that Mordecai would not bow to him, such that he decided, as a consequence, all the Jews in the world need to die. Um, he then goes to the king, tells them that the Jews are a terrible people, the world would be better off without them, and he offers to personally pay for their extermination. This would be the equivalent of like Hitler offering to personally finance the concentration camps. Um, this is not just uh, a, a show of hatred. He's putting his money where his mouth is, literally. Uh, he offers to pay 10,000 talents of silver, Talents about 75 pounds, so we're talking, if I do the math right, 37 and a half tons of silver, which is a lot of money today, and it's a lot of money back then, too. Um, and again, if, you know, with Hasselwares having lost the fight uh, with Greece and, and kind of, you know, potentially having to pay a lot of money, reputational loss, the treasury may be in bad shape. Um, and so that may be why this is so attractive to Ahasuerus to let this guy kill a random people group uh, within the empire. He needs the money. And the amount of money that Haman is offering is more than would be necessary to raise up the forces to go exterminate the people of Israel. Um, and uh, now, of course, Persia is a giant place. And again, going back to the whole concept of a partial return, it's not as if all of Israel went back to Judah uh, and conveniently put themselves in one place. Um, they didn't. They're still spread out throughout the, the empire. Um, and so logistically, genocide is problematic. It's hard. It's, it's difficult. And so they pick a day in the future uh, in which this is going to occur. 
Um, one additional note, this genocide, you know, don't, don't think of it as if, like, the governor of the area is going to raise up a posse of armed men and then go door to door and kill them. That's not what seems to be in view here. Um, this is more of a directive uh, for, for everybody to do this. Um, so it's not like, you know, if we're contextualizing to today, this is not like the governor saying, I'm going to bring the National Guard in and, you know, county sheriffs and CHP and we're going to go do this thing. This is like attack via neighbor. Um, anybody who hates the Jews. It'd be like saying white supremacist groups, it's a field day. Now, that's kind of the gist of what's happening here, um, which, which makes it all the more terrifying um, because you don't know who's going to be attacking you. You know that guy over there is an anti-Semite. You know he's going to be part of it, but you know, you know, you're allowed to, to come in and plunder uh, your neighbor's property. And so this is probably going to incite violence by all sorts of random people as well, um, which I think actually makes it all the more evil and terrifying. Um, and the fact that the day has set and notice goes out throughout the whole empire. Um, and so literally, if you're a Jew at the time, you have a ticking clock over your head. You know that in a certain period of time, this, this mass extermination is going to occur. Um, another Saul reference side note, by the way, what Haman orders is essentially the inverse of what God ordered Saul to do to the Amalekites. Um, and again, this is nothing less than deep, deep, deep evil. It is pride manifesting in hatred, manifesting in an attempt to exterminate a whole people. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, we read about Esther's intervention. Um, she agrees to intervene, um, but she does so secretly and at the risk of her own life. She asks the king to allow her to throw a banquet that's just for him and for Haman. Um, and Haman gets the invite, and he starts heading home. He's on top of the world. The queen's going to throw this special banquet. It's just for me and the king. Um, and on the way, guess what? He sees that Mordecai again. The dude does not bow. And he also flies into a rage. He goes home, and this is where he literally tells his friends, his family, his, his wife, I have everything in the world, but it means nothing to me because that one guy is not bowing to me. Um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is pride that would make the devil blush. I mean, this is, this, is, this, is, this is pretty insane for a human being to feel, but he does, and his wife good, solid advice uh, uh, tells him, well, if you hate the guy that much, go have a massive gallows, a massive hangman's noose erected outside of your house um, and hang him on it. So uh, Haman thinks that's a great idea and he immediately, like that night, gets the carpenters to start building it. Um, and it's a 75-foot-tall hangman's noose, if I did my math right there. So something you could see for long ways off. This is a very prominent uh, execution device. Um, unfortunately for Haman, he, uh, he shows up um, at exactly the wrong time. He goes back into the palace. That night, though, the king could not sleep, and um, because he was an insomniac, uh, he asked for uh, books to be read to him, and one of the books was sort of the chronicles of his own reign, so maybe he's a narcissist as well. Um, but he, uh, he starts hearing about things that happened during his rule, and he comes across the story of Mordecai saving his life. And he asks, what 
what uh, what was what was his reward? And that they look in the book and they say, yeah, yeah, we kind of forgot to. So in that exact moment, Haman walks in the door, and the king says, Haman, what should I do to someone that um, I want to honor? Haman comes up with a grand uh, uh, answer, and then the king says, go do that for Mordecai. Uh, so in the first sort of reversal for for Haman, he is. Bitterly depressed, he has to exalt his 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 hated rival, um, and um, he goes home sad. Also, at that exact moment, the king uh, summons to Esther's banquet happens, and so he gets you know he doesn't have time to mope or moan. He has to go directly to the palace to go uh, 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 have this feast with the king and his wife. Um, at the party, when that happens, uh, you know, Esther reveals that, um, in, in kind of a very sneaky way, uh, that there's an evil man who's trying to kill her and her people, the king who, again, has been drinking. Uh, he's angry. He demands to know who would do such a thing, and the queen springs it on Haman right there. That guy, he's the one, not Gary, Haman. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Haman, Haman, of course, panics. The king... Uh, you know, in a, in a show of, 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 of self-control, gets up and walks out of the room, you know, presumably to sort of calm himself down, I would imagine, and uh, Haman takes the opportunity to, to sort of jump on the couch or whatever they're sitting on and beg and plead um, uh, Esther to, to take it back, to, to not condemn him, to keep it, spare his life. And at that moment, the king walks back in the room, sees Haman, and assumes, wrongly, that uh, Haman is attempting to assault the queen, and then immediately summons the guards, gags the guy, carts him off, and he hangs him on the same gallows that Mordecai was to be hung on. Um, and in that sense, the main threat to Israel is undone. That said, um, those orders are still out there. That day is still set. It's not like it magically goes away when Haman dies. And so in chapters 8 to 10, we kind of read about how Esther and Mordecai come up with a scheme to, they can't reverse the order legally, but they can send a, a separate set of orders, and the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. Not only do they do that successfully, um, they actually instill a fear in, in the people. People convert to Judaism at that point um, as a result of their victory, and Mordecai takes Haman's place, becoming number two in the empire and ending the book. Right? Right? It's a stunning reversal of fate all throughout. Questions? Comments? All right. I'm running out of time. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Josh. Um, so the end part, when they're like allowed to defend themselves, like, I never quite understood that. <coughs> like, if someone's trying to kill me, whether or not the king says I'm allowed to defend myself, but I'm going to defend myself. <laughs> so I guess I don't understand exactly how. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not it's not explicitly clear either. Um, so, in fairness, you know you have to read between the lines a little bit. Um, it probably had something to do with their right to assemble, their right to um, you know not, not everyone necessarily has weapons. Um, I would imagine that if you were a Jew at the time, you went to a blacksmith to get a sword because you don't have one. You're probably going to be told no. Um, at the same point in time, too, the orders were pretty explicit. Everyone, take up arms, kill them all. Um, whereas now there's a second order that goes out that's going to chill the first one to a certain extent. The folks who are probably going to still attack Israel are the ones who are going to you know, really, really hate them. 
I would imagine most people probably didn't feel that way. You know, like again, contextualizing to America, the white supremacist groups would certainly do it, right? But the average person, eh, probably not. Um, and so it, it probably chilled the number of people who were actually going to attack them, which made their chances of survival and counterattack even better. So it, 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 it wasn't necessarily like some magic pill, but at the same point in time, it blunted the inevitability of their death. Did they actually try? Because I don't remember, like, no, they didn't actually attack the Jews at any event, did they? Because of that, that, that dynamic? Or am I remembering wrong? Well, it, I mean, the, 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 the Jews end up getting into a fight. And I'm trying to remember okay. if they, because it's not as if, like, no violence occurs. They, okay. end, up, they end up attacking people. They specifically mentioned people in the city of Susa, 500, I think, who end up dying at the end of the book. Um, and so whether or not like the Jews went on the offensive and you know they went after the KKK or they um, you know uh, responded and just beat off their attackers, um, I, I can't remember exactly who struck first, but right. there was a fight. Right, you're right. Yes. Um, I was curious if you knew, given the important position that Haman and Mordecai eventually had, uh, is there anything that made it into outside extra Google history, historical records that we have, or? There, uh, I'm trying to remember, the, the name Mordecai comes up, um, but both him and Esther, it's, it's pretty scant. It's pretty scant if memory serves. <coughs> um, there are extra biblical references to Mordecai though, pretty sure. Cool. All right. Well, let's let's transition to theology and themes um, and application. I'm going to truncate this a little bit. I'll still touch on everything, but um, we'll go we'll go fast. Some of this is pretty self-explanatory. Um, the, the 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 header covers the content. But first one: God's covenant and prophetic faithfulness. The return of Israel to the kingdom of Judah um, in the land is a testimony to God's faithfulness. He promised that the exile would last 70 years. It did. He promised a return to the land, and he has fulfilled that. We see in these books God's covenant faithfulness. Um, and then Esther highlights the fact that not only did God bring his people back while they were still under foreign rule, he was orchestrating their deliverance and their protection um, uh, at the same time. And I think, you know, kind of juxtaposing Ezra and Nehemiah, he's doing this for the good of his people, even though they're messing up in the land. They're still intermarrying foreign women. They're doing other things. He's, he's still delivering his people, still working things together for their good. He is preventing any of his promises from being, um, uh, failing to come to pass. Um, second, God is really, really sovereign. Um, his command and control over everything is very much on display in these three books. Uh, multiple times in Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, we're told that these men were successful or that the king explicitly did what they asked because the hand of the Lord was on them. Um, while Esther has the distinction of being the only book in the Bible that doesn't ever actually mention God at all, um, it's nonetheless a book that loudly proclaims God's sovereignty by showing it in action. Um, 
And in fact, you know, the fact that Esther takes place in a, in a foreign land with the most powerful king in the world, and just pausing here for a second, there's a scene in the book um, where Esther makes it very clear that to come into this guy's presence, like you know, this is his throne room, to come into his presence without invitation is subject to the death penalty. If he says, yeah, sure, I'll let you in, you live, you can talk with him, but if you walk into that room without his permission and he doesn't want to talk with you, the consequence is death. That's how powerful this king is. Um, it's one of the reasons why Esther takes her own life into her hands in saving her people. Um, but Esther shows that, that God turns this guy's heart and, and circumstance and events as easily as he does in a bird in the sky. Um, God's sovereignty is very much on display in these books. Third, um, we also see you know, a, a little bit, I think, of the, the, the function of the law in revealing sin and sinfulness. Um, in the good example of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see um, the fact that uh, 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 those who have dedicated themselves to, to God, to obedience uh, to his covenant, uh, it results in blessing. And that's in contrast to the faithlessness uh, that we see in Israel and uh, certainly the faithlessness that we see reaccounted in Ezra, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 9 and throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, and so we, we, we see this sort of um, you know, a faithfulness, faithlessness contrast. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the point, uh, echoing again Nehemiah chapter 9. You know, we're, we're really meant to see in, this, in Nehemiah in particular uh, this macro theme from Exodus 20 all the way to the end of the Old Testament, which is where we're at, that there is something fundamentally wrong with people. Um, we, you know, the law, the law was given to lead us to Christ. And it does that by, one, helping us see that our own individual transgressions against specific commands, but it also helps us to see that through centuries of Israel's failure with it, that there is a fundamental, innate inability on the part of man to submit to the rule of God. Israel is a picture of that in the Old Testament. There is something fundamentally wrong with us. We don't just need clearer revelation or better experience with God or more proof. Israel had these things. They had just been brought back into the land and they had just rededicated themselves to the covenant and they started intermarrying again. They violated the Sabbath. They polluted the temple. I mean, like, immediately. There's something fundamentally wrong with us and these books remind us that what we need is not more revelation, more truth, more proof. What we need is to be fundamentally changed, to be reborn. Um, let's go forth. Priestly king and the kingly priest. Um, so it is interesting in, in Nehemiah in particular, where we see Ezra and Nehemiah sort of work together, um, that uh, you, you see this, this priestly function and this kingly function work hand in hand together. Um, in God's providence, Ezra could have been, you know, born and lived out in chapters one through six, but he didn't. He, he ordained that Ezra and Nehemiah would kind of do their things together. Um, and that the Israel's return to the land and the rebuilding of Jerusalem would happen under both a faithful priest and a faithful ruler. Um, and these two functions worked hand in hand with one another in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, first and foremost, you know, Ezra proclaimed and taught the law to the people, but it was at a gathering that Nehemiah called. Um, Ezra uh, called the people to repentance and to rededicate themselves to God. Uh, but in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, he uses his political power to help ensure that that happens and to keep the people 
faithful. Um, and I think this is meant to sort of point us again to Jesus, um, that what we need, what the God's people need, is a priestly king and a kingly priest, which is exactly what we have in Christ. We have someone who is both prophet, priest, and king. Three things, actually. Fifth, uh, the reality of two kingdoms. Um, so this one goes, you know, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the, 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 the curse um, in the garden. There was always going to be two fundamental divisions, two people groups, those of the devil, those of the promised seed. And every single person is in one of those two camps. There's no neutral parties. There's no people who haven't landed yet. You're in one or the other. Um, and in these books, we, we see that Israel comes back into the land and they're immediately met with Samaritan opposition. We see that in Haman's hate. Um, there are two categories of people in the world and those people groups are at odds with one another. There is no friendship or parity with the world, which we'll draw some application from in a second. But before we get to application, I know I'm going fast for the sake of time, questions, comments, concerns on any of those themes that we see in these books. All right. Let's apply this then. Um, so first and foremost, you know, when you, when you read through the books, um, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. And maybe it's more frustrating having... Um, uh, uh, you know, gone through this survey together, but you know, especially if you're just sort of reading through the chronological history of the Old Testament, to see Israel having just got back into the land after an exile that took place because of their lack of faithfulness, and then to rededicate themselves to the Mosaic Covenant, and then immediately start breaking it, and not just breaking it in general ways, but breaking it in ways that they explicitly, explicitly mentioned that they wouldn't. It's heartbreaking, it's frustrating, um, and it just goes to highlight the reality that, that sin is ever-present with us. Um, if, if temptation wasn't tempting, we wouldn't sin as much. Uh, but the reality is that it is sin finds a ready ally in our flesh, and the fact is we need to be on guard. So do not flirt with this world. We need to be vigilant, we need to be dedicated, we need to be guarding our hearts and be zealous in our fight for faith and against sin because these books remind us just how easy it is to backslide um, and, uh, and fall into that trap. Uh, this next one is something that, you know, I, I think is, is, is less obvious, um, but what happens after Nehemiah is essentially known as the intertestamental period or the period of silence. Um, basically, lots of stuff happens to Israel, but it's not really uh, uh, in the biblical record um, until we get to the New Testament. So there's this period, I think it's 300 years or so. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but some, some decent length of time in which, essentially, there's no, there's no new revelation. Um, and what's interesting is I think these three books in particular are God preparing his people for that, that period. Um, it is not surprising that right before the period of time in which God goes verbally silent to his people, 
there is a book in which God is never mentioned, but still shown to clearly be in control and working for his people. Um, I've always wondered why Esther never mentioned God. I think that's part of it, that, that it's, it's, it's in God's grace. It's written that way to illustrate the point that while he might be verbally silent, he is nonetheless for his people. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah also seem to be preparing Israel for that period of silence. The books make crystal clear that Israel has the law. They've got the prophets. They've got the testimony of their ancestors. They have the truth that they need, and what they need is to be faithful to it. They don't need new words. They need to adhere to the words that they have. And in the same way for us, God has stopped giving fresh revelation when the apostles died. But just because God is silent doesn't mean that he isn't actively leading and working in the church. Like Israel, we have the revelation that we need. And our job, like them, is to go back into the word. It's to listen to faithful men who proclaim the word accurately. And what we need is not a fresh word, but to be faithful and to trust and obey what's already been given to us and what is preached week in and week out. And so for us, just like them, it's a reminder to treat the word of God with the reverence and the respect that it deserves. Uh, third, do what we have the power to do. You know, one of the interesting things about Esther is that she is, you know, initially hesitant, um, but she's hesitant in part because she actually has no real power. Remember, her predecessor was exiled and had her, you know, queenly status taken away from her because she didn't show up to a party. Um, she doesn't really have any power. What she has at best is access to the king and his affection for her. And so she did what she could in the way that she could to help Israel. And in the context of the church, there are absolutely all sorts of flashy things um, that happen. Flashy in the sense of, you know, whether it's up here teaching equipping hour or preaching. Um, there are other less flashy but more public uh, uh, areas to serve, whether that's, you know, ushering or doing sound or those sorts of things. Um, but at the same point in time, like... There are lonely people in the church that need visiting. There's meal ministries. There's a thousand little, tiny, unstated needs across this body all day long, every day. Um, whether or not you're serving in a, in a more prominent, in a public way or not, whatever you have the ability, the capacity, the power to do, no matter how small it is, do it. That's the standard for us. Do, do, what we have, do what we have in our power to do to serve one another in the church. Uh, last two, see the world through the lens of the two kingdoms. I think it is really helpful when we remember this two-kingdom viewpoint in our daily life. When we do that, we see the mission field for what it is. Every single person that we come across is not some neutral blank slate but they are ultimately a citizen of a hostile nation. And our job is to proclaim the true king in hopes of winning some of them. When we see people in that light, we'll be a lot less surprised when we face opposition or persecution. Um, we will realize just why it is that there is no partnership or friendship with the world, because you can't be in, in friendship with an opposing party. You're, 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 you're in opposition with one another. Um, it's, it's the reason why we're advised, not advised, commanded to not marry someone who is not of the faith. Uh, because, you know, and it's the same reason why Israel was not supposed to marry foreigners. Because no matter how attractive or pretty or fun or nice or whatever else that person might be, 
what you're doing is joining yourself to an enemy combatant, and you'll be constantly tempted to compromise what is right. So this this two sort of two kingdom two uh, two world lens, um, uh, you know, keeping that in perspective helps us in our daily life. Uh, re- realize kind of where we're at and what our obligations are to our neighbor um, and just, just helps us, I think, in general. Uh, last, avoid borrowed faith. Um, at the end of Nehemiah, Israel would have been in, in pretty big danger had it not been for him cleaning house. But some of the ways that Nehemiah did it was um, borderline like sort of behavior modification. So those Gentiles who were coming into the city on the Sabbath to tempt Israel to buy and sell, he just closed the city gates. He banned them from coming in. Um, and if they can't come in, they can't trade. And eventually they went away. Um, in the same way for us, it's really easy to let programs, schedules, routines, spouses, parents, or whatever sort of create an appearance of faithfulness in our lives. Um, you know, for example, and this is you know, for the few kids in the room, um, imagine, imagine your parents said, it's entirely up to you. You want to come on Sunday morning? You don't. Whatever you want is up to you. No shame, no punishment, no judgment. They're entirely neutral. Would you show? Would you come? Or are you here because they're making you? Um, speaking to husbands, because usually it's the wives who are more faithful. You know, how, how many of us show up to you know, nighttime services or other sorts of things because we know our wives are going to want to and we don't want to have to deal with like, saying, I want to stay home and then fighting them over it. Um, you know, th- those sorts of realities. It's easy, it's easy to sort of let um, inertia um, or, or mom- sorry, momentum, I should say, uh, kind of keep us doing things in the church without necessarily having a heart that's commensurate with it. Um, As a fun thought exercise, and I'll end here, imagine that you were going to have, in two weeks' time, two weeks, a meeting with one of the elders. They're going to sit down, and you know they're going to ask you a series of spiritually diagnostic questions. How's your prayer life? How's your family devotionals? Uh, How's your time in the Word? In those next two weeks, would you experience a spike in those things? Would you experience a spike? And so you can say, maybe, maybe not deliberately, but you want to be able to have a good report. If, if you would imagine that it's going to go up and it's going to be different than where you're currently at, maybe that's, maybe that's some, some self-reflection that's appropriate. Tim. More like one of our pastors were going to send us an online poll of something like that. <laughs> Yes, if you knew if you knew if you knew there was going to be a before and after after nine weeks, has this been the most faithful you've been in years? The point is, the point is, is that we can sort of let the church and the things that happen in the church drag us along, um, and and thank God for that. Otherwise, we'd probably be in a worse place. But the goal is to have hearts that dive in that are faithful and sincere um and so you know what nehemiah did is a good reminder that sometimes it's good to take stock and see are we sincerely jumping in or are we being dragged along all right i'm done questions comments anything at all all right let's pray Lord, thank you for, again, these books and the, um, 
edifying encouragement that they are. May they be dear and precious to us, and may this congregation just be um, encouraged and edified as we read them, um, and uh, as we read indeed the entirety of the Old Testament, Lord, um, may we see our need for our Savior all the more clearly. May we rejoice in him all the more certainly uh, because of what we've seen in the Old Testament, and may that make that book uh, near and dear and precious to us. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.